Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Coming to you live on tape from week 96 of quarantine from my eight-year-old son's bedroom in rapidly gentrifying Culver City, adjacent California, boasting a partially obstructed view of absolutely jack shit. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, a thinker, an anarchist, a provocateur, a podcaster, and most importantly for our present purposes, the author of a recent book entitled The New Right, A Journey to the Fringe of American Politics. Hello and welcome, Michael Malice. That is the best intro I've heard on a podcast in a long time. And I will confirm that everything you said is factual because I'm looking behind you at seeing a Godzilla action figure which, as a kid, mm-hmm. an immigrant kid, I wish I would have had. So oh, I'm oh, glad oh, you're oh, spoiling oh, your son. You like? Oh, this is my room. This is this is these are all my. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and I could see that those clothes might fit me. <laughs> That's right. You um, you're from Ukraine. Yeah. Uh, and your family. I used to live in a Ukrainian neighborhood uh, in the East Village, but you were you oh. settled in in Brooklyn. Yeah, I live right by Taras Shevchenko Place. Oh, okay. Wow, that's not a bad spot. No, it was. Yeah, it was a little bit more affordable twenty-five years ago. Sure, sure. And you ended up in Brooklyn, Bensonhurst. Okay, yeah, in Bensonhurst. Yeah. It's funny that you you brought that up right off the bat. I feel like you bring an outsider's view to American society and American politics, despite the fact that you've spent the vast majority of your life inside America. Is that fair to say? Oh, extremely. And I think part of it comes with the fact that, you know, starting from an early age, I went to, you know, we left the Soviet Union. My parents knew not to send me to public school. I went to yeshiva, which is, you know, Jew school for everybody else. And when you have that uh, as your upbringing and speaking Russian at home, you are going and living in New York City, certainly, which is very much an outlier within American culture as a whole. You are going to have a bit of that arm's length perspective, which I think if you're going to be a writer is of enormous use. Oh, oh, God, yeah, yeah, no doubt about it. Yeah, you've enjoyed a very fun and uh, enviable career so far. Let me just get people up to speed on who you are. Um, you were the subject of a graphic novel by Harvey P. Carr, which is a collector's item. Um, have you checked recently to see what the book about you is going for on Amazon? Uh, $130. <laughs> It is. That's not a joke. I thought it might have been a little bit higher. I, I checked it out last night. So. Okay. Oh, has it, has it gone up? Yeah. That's What's got, it up to now? That's got to feel good. I thought it was more in the 200 range. Oh, wow. So, okay. Some dope paid 200. <laughs> it was recent. It was recently reprinted in Spain. Mm-hmm. So for those of you who speak Spanish, uh, you can get it cheap. Okay. Good to know. Uh, under what circumstances did that come together? Why did he want to write about, what, what was his interest in you, do you think? Um, well, Harvey, uh, for those who don't know, he passed away in 2010. He was a subject of a movie called American Splendor. Mm-hmm. He was a file clerk in Cleveland for many years and wrote comic books kind of for adults, not in a pornographic sense, but about his mundane life. And, and the tagline for the movie was ordinary life is pretty complex stuff. Mm-hmm. And then we met and he wanted to write a story paralleling his family's and that generation's uh, escape from Eastern Europe, which would have been the early 20th century with the, the wave which I came in with this late 70s but then the more we got to know each other the more it just became you know like my biography took over I met him and this is just good advice in general I met him because Ted Hope who is the producer for the film 
sent out an email to the company that said, Harvey's in town with nothing to do. If you want to hang out with him, now's your chance. And no one took him up on it other than me, which is just very sad to me because so many people, young people, they want to try to make it. They want to try to aspire to some career where they, they're their own boss or they're working in entertainment in some capacity. And the point is, take the lunch. If you're meeting someone who's inspirational, who's talented, who's you know interesting, stay late an hour. At the very least, you could pick that person's brain and get useful life advice. And people don't think in these terms. They have these blinkers on. And it's very sad because I think there's so much opportunity out there. And if we just give ourselves the chance to hope for something better, a lot of times, and Mike, I'm sure you've seen this in your career, it's just a function of stamina. Yes. If you just keep knocking on doors, it's like roulette. It's going to hit at some point. And, you know, you could be that person who's a mediocre author like myself because eventually just stuck around and someone was stupid enough to be like, all right, let's get you a book. Yeah, you, you know, I know somebody who's won Oscars for screenwriting and he said he started off with a, a writer's group and he said every single one of them that didn't quit is now working in Hollywood. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the, the advice I give talks sometimes to kids and I'll tell them, go to any bookstore. Because when I wanted to become an author... I read a book that was recommended by Chuck Palahniuk by Dennis Johnson called Jesus' Son. And it was so beautiful, beautiful and beautifully written, I almost gave up. And then I realized I don't have to be Dennis Johnson. And mm -hmm. Dennis Johnson is Dennis Johnson. I didn't know he was a poet previously, so that explains why the writing was so good. And I tell people, go to any bookstore and look at all the garbage books yeah. on those shelves. That could be you. Right. You could be that mediocre author that everyone's like, how does this person have a book? And when you put it in those terms, it, it changes from being some miracle to being like, oh, this is something that is within reach. It's going to take a lot of work. It's going to be very frustrating. It's going to really beat up your ego. But at a certain point, like you could have that book that will be on clearance in a year. But that's still a major accomplishment. Yes, yes, yes. No, I came to that conclusion very early on. I started off as a musician and I knew I could never be as good as my heroes, but I was pretty sure I could be better than the guys who are awful. Yeah, right. And then the people laugh like, oh, haha, this band's a one-hit wonder. Yeah. That is a 99th percentile. If you have a song that yeah. everyone knows, mm -hmm. you have changed the culture, yeah. and you could go to meet your maker with a smile on your face. Yep, and you can play endless county fairs for the rest of your life if you yeah. so choose. Not a bad fallback plan. Nobody's right. making you do it. You, uh, I, I don't mind telling you, you seem a lot more pleasant than I expected you to be. Based on your book, I was, I was almost expecting, I did not sleep very well last night, and I was sort of dreading having to do battle with somebody who's sort of like an acerbic know-it-all, which is, well, I'll just say something I kind of got from your book. And I don't get that from you personally. And I'm, I, I don't feel like I'm complimenting you despite the fact that I'm trying to. We can go there if you like. <laughs> I, I wear many hats, sir. Uh -huh. I, I mean, so I'm, I'm perfectly happy doing acerbic know-it-all. No, 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 sure. please, please. I'm, 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 I haven't slept enough for acerbic know-it-all. <laughs> this is great. I love your subject. I forget how it came on my radar, but I instantly wanted to talk to you because you, you promise and I think you deliver a really – valuable and unique insight into a world that um, many of us were largely unaware of until it was a little bit too late that yeah. even now remains shrouded in mystery. I kind of compare the and the book is The New Right, A Journey to the Fringe of American Politics. To me, it it's not the same as conspiracy theory, although there is some Venn diagram overlap. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. It's these ideas have always been out there. These people have always been out there. So it was easy because things of that nature had been floating around in the culture, it was easy to not notice the water rising and just how many of them there were and just how fervent the belief had become. That's that's the way that I kind of look at it until you go, 
oh, I actually, I can't dismiss this. I need, we, we, well, and I still, I, I, as someone who basically lives on the left, remain disappointed that the left still does not seem to realize that they need to engage entangle with this and that it can't merely be dismissed that that should have been blatantly obvious by november of 2016 and i still feel like many people haven't gotten that message yeah and it's it's really kind of uh i mean i i know people on the left if you you know there's people who are in the trump world who will tell you that joe biden is basically bernie sanders and if you're a democrat this is so nonsensical you don't even know where to start you know contradicting it because like where, where do you even begin right um and at the same time to have people be like trump is the same thing as the nazis which is the same thing as the Klan, which is the same thing as alex jones which is the same thing as jeb bush it, it, i mean if you just stop and think for a second it, it's really a bizarre perspective especially given a country where racism and white supremacy was so much a part and parcel of both political parties so to try to as both you know there's this Dinesh D'Souza brand of conservatism which tries to make the claim that the Democrats were the real racist you know it's not like Teddy Roosevelt was exactly raving the rainbow flag you know in 1901 oh oh my god can I tell you something so I'm in my child's room right now and my kids at that age where he's just his brain is starting to fire off he's eight years old and we were in um a secondhand store and he found a great big beautiful leather bound book and he just fell in love with the look of this book and he said i'm gonna get this and i'm gonna read this someday and he's got it on his bookshelf alongside the star wars stuff it's a teddy roosevelt book about how the west was won and i don't know how i'm going i if he actually tries to read this when he has any idea whatsoever what he is reading oh yeah it's going to completely blow his mind because teddy roosevelt wasn't worrying about how posterity was going to judge the things he said and the things he believed about native americans oh it's, it's, it's i mean that's just one of many I yeah mean, my god i mean yeah. he he was ba- a compl- it's really i saw james woods you know, was recently posting a meme with Teddy Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt was the one who invented this high-handed authoritarianism with something called the New Nationalism, which was based on a book by Herbert Crowley. And he claimed, it was a lie. It says, if the Constitution doesn't explicitly forbid me for doing something, then as president, I can do it. it. The Tenth Amendment is a contradiction of that. And he was very high-handed in his mechanisms. He was the first progressive president. Him and Wilson despised each other, but they were both hardcore progressives by any measure. And it's very hard to reconcile that if you have this binary worldview where Republican is bad and Democrat is good or vice versa. Uh, It it does not port out easily, uh, especially because Woodrow Wilson was also a hardcore social conservative, even forgetting the racism and the white supremacy. I mean, you had this very prim, puritanical mindset, which nowadays you'd only find relics of this in kind of this uh, religious right uh, aspect of American culture. You're not going to find it in the Democratic Party very much. What is the nature of your education? It seems like you have so many books at your at your fingertips. Did you go to college for forever or more of an autodidact? I'm an autodidact. Yeah, I went to Bucknell. I was a business major because I knew that that would be the best credential uh, for me in terms of getting a job. But yeah. I, you know, always been an obsessive reader. Good for you. I mean, because it really is. I, 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 you know, typically... I don't have time to read every single book from cover to cover that um, I talk to authors about, and um, I you, you end up skimming, and I wasn't able to skim your book a because I found it too interesting. I really didn't want to oh, to you. miss anything, and and secondly, just because because it is it is so dense. It's uh, there's a lot a lot a lot to to chew on, and um, again, I I mean that as a, a compliment. Thank you. So 
let me just sort of establish for everybody who's listening where you are, what you are bringing to the table, what your your background is, your perspective before we talk about the things you have to say about the new right. You are an anarchist. Uh, you do not vote. Let me know if I'm putting words in your mouth. You seem to find both sides nearly or totally equally ridiculous. So you are able to freely criticize because you don't have your own sacred cows in the set binary spectrum of American politics. Well, I wouldn't say equally because that's a loaded leftist term. But yeah, otherwise, I agree with everything you just okay, said. How is yeah. that? A, how is equally a loaded leftist term? Well, the term equally, equal, equally is the basis of leftism, equality. Uh, so I think a lot of times when people want to say, well, I hate both sides, not that you're saying that, mm -hmm. they're trying to, a lot of times they're just being intellectually uh, um, cowardly or lazy. So I would say they're ridiculous in different ways. Mm -hmm. But I mean, if you put a gun to my head, in a certain context, the right is more ridiculous. In a certain context, the left is more ridiculous. Okay, okay. I actually was starting to get the impression that um, with the concept of the cathedral, which we'll get into a, at, at some length, that maybe you found the left even worse than the right, not necessarily in its system of beliefs, but in the way it tries to perpetuate and spread those beliefs. The, the person, the side that's worse is the one that's winning. Mm. So if this was under the George Bush presidency, most certainly the right would be worse because they're waging war and declaring you persona non grata mm -hmm. if you're not a, being a cheerleader for this war. Right. Uh, and then when the left is winning, they're f by far worse. And they're also, they also are worse in ways that they borrow from each other. Like during the Clinton years when you had like Tipper Gorin having warning labels on CDs because Cindy Lauper's song Shebop is something that is going to encourage kids to masturbate. You, you could sit there and be like, how are you people presenting this with a straight face? Also, you just, you clearly enjoy like entertaining ideas that you don't necessarily agree with and yes. swimming in waters that you are ideologically not perfectly comfortable. I, I get that and, and I appreciate that. And I, I think it's really valuable in this day and age. And it's obviously what enabled you to write this book. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. So what is, you feel like you had this, you know, in, in retrospect, privileged entry into the new right, the alt right. How did you get pulled into those waters? And when? So, yeah, I was on Facebook and there was something called the Troll Board, which was a secret Facebook group. It just means secret, meaning like you can't join it. Someone has to invite you in. And it was full of anarchists. I did not really know any anarchists previous to that um, in kind of a, the Rothbard school. And it was very, very irreverent. Uh, the way I found out about the uh, basically everyone in this group had admin rights. So they would constantly change both the name and the banner picture of the group. I found out about the Boston bombing. I was on a flight and my uh, ex-girlfriend at the time had changed the name of the group to Boston Massacre 2 Electric Boogaloo. Uh, you know, it had a picture of the bomb exploding. So it was very much this extreme irreverence, you know, all nothing off limits kind of stuff. And then in that space, I noticed a lot of people, this is kind of slippery slope many people talk about, we're drifting into, at the time, what was called like the Dark Enlightenment or Neo Reaction, NRX was the hashtag. And they were talking about these, you know, well-developed concepts that uh, are still very much taboo. Um, and, you know, basically like, okay, what, what, are the, what causes homosexuality? If it's genetic, but it's not all twins have it, is it a pathogen, right? But when you start talking about these terms, pathogen, homosexuality, a lot of people freak out because now you're invoking AIDS and all this other stuff. So. Uh, and then they get darker and darker and, you know, things about should we have been in World War II, you know, so was Hitler worse than Stalin, and, which is an interesting academic 
question to have, to be fair, but it was also Venn diagramming very heavily with some more nefarious kind of concepts. So as this kind, and I'm very familiar with how ideas permeate into the public consciousness because they start in the fringes uh, and then you'll have some kind of you know, edgy or faux edgy journalist will write it up and then corporate America will kind of appropriate it and excrete it in a manner that is for public consumption that the masses won't be troubled by. You see this lather and repeat over and over. Can, can, you give me, can you give me an example of that? Sure, absolutely. I, this is one of my favorite tweets. If you go to Times Square uh, during, I think it's, it's during Pride Month, it's only corporate America that can make sodomy and perversion look boring and banal. Uh, I mean, Pride was about drag queens. It was about if you were gay at the time, you're going to get fired. They would be proud to fire you. The New York Times would be publishing your name to out you. Uh, these were perverts, disgusting, blah, blah, blah. And now Skittles, you know, every brand is glad to talk about pride, but they won't talk about gay sex. It's this very bizarre kind of uh, neo-puritanical approach. Uh, and drug use. Drug use, you know, Last Next to Brooklyn is a great novel by Hubert Selby talking about junkies. You were not, you're supposed to pretend these people don't exist. Uh, certainly, if you're in a movie by the code, the Hayes Code, uh, and, and later codes, you have to portray this person as doomed. And then nowadays, you could have any actor on TV talking about, I was in rehab, and they're lauded as heroes. Uh, this is an enormous shift from how someone who's a drug user has been perceived from invisible to marginalized to valorized. Um, so I saw these ideas coming up. I knew that there is an enormous amount, of, there's a very enormous lack of intellectual heft on the right. A lot of uh, conservatism for a good number of years is simply a reaction to leftism. Like, uh, you know, going on Twitter and being proud to say Bruce Jenner instead of Caitlyn, and they think they're marching on Normandy. It's like, oh, I'll show them. I'm going to use, I'm going to insist on using his male name. It's like, okay, great. Like, what, 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 what are you for? All you're for is just repudiating what the left is for. That's not a, a guiding philosophy. These groups did have a guiding philosophy and ideology, and I knew it would be a matter of time before people on the right start discussing it. And I thought, well, if someone is going to write this book, it might as well be someone who understood this from the outset, as opposed to, let's say, someone from The New Yorker who's basically going to dismiss it or kind of cobble it all together as, you know, the second wave of the John Birch Society or a neo-clan movement, which there are certainly elements of it, but is far from being comprehensive. If you're going to sit and say Peter Thiel is basically a, the new incarnation of David Duke, I don't think that's, you know, very intellectually savvy, to say the least. Um, and right off the bat, how do you understand the the Donald Trump phenomenon in regard to the phenomenon of the new right, the alt-right, whatever you want to call it. Sure, sure. So uh, the Trump phenomenon, which I think a lot of people on the left don't appreciate, that if Donald Trump vanishes tomorrow, this isn't all going away. Right. I think a lot of people, especially people in corporate media, think this is a function of Trump himself, and that once he's defeated, we can go back to normal. That is not happening. Uh, I can assure everyone, and I bet every dollar in, in my pocket, that that is not going to happen at all. Well, that there's far... I, yeah, I mostly agree with you. It seems to me like I'm picturing, like, uh, since I am in a child's room, like like Mickey Mouse in The Sorcerer's Apprentice. There is this cauldron of this stuff. And it's yeah. definitely more effective when you have the wizard who is able to channel it and amplify it and and, and use it. So it's, it's, it's a, a potent potential 
uh, whether or not somebody else can shepherd that potential as effectively is going to determine, at least in the immediate term following him, how much it continues to have a real imprint on who's actually getting elected. But it will be, yeah, an, it, it will be an animus on the right no matter what. Yeah, and I mean, uh, the same way that in many ways Occupy Wall Street begat the current Black Lives Matter movement in terms of, you know, how it works and it's leaderless and, you know, sure, Bernie Sanders in some capacity and AOC want to take that energy, but if they were not there, this energy would still be there yes. and it would still be, you know, affecting social change, certainly on a local level. If Trump went away, you know, this kind of heretical right-wing stuff isn't going anywhere and many of them have enormous contempt for him um, and regard him understandably as a bit of a buffoon. Uh, let me get into the the specifics of, of the book. I found it interesting right off the bat that you said that one of the reasons you became interested in telling the story of the alt-right is because you are you believe that there are people in there who might yet be saved. Yes. So there was this show called Beyond Scared Straight. Mm -hmm. and, it, and it basically, for those who don't know, the show was it took young kids who were really on the wrong path. And I don't mean the wrong path, they're cheating in tests. I mean, like, they're violent drug dealers. They're assaulting their family members. Like, really, you, you, people are ready to write them off. And they'll take them and make them spend a night in jail and we'll talk to these criminals. Now, many of them, they'll have follow-ups in the episode. Many of them are, are a lost cause. Like, they're, they will never be saved. They're career criminals. You might as well lock them up now. They're done. Some, let's suppose 3%, uh, will see what, what the future holds for them. We'll talk to a criminal who basically had the same background as them and be like, you, tell, tell them, dude, you have the chance to change your ways. Like, do not end up like this. Jail is horrible. And some actually, you know, kind of revert to what we regard as wholesome good citizens. So there's this idea that young men, especially, you know, when they start getting involved in this kind of heretical and, you know, very offensive, it, genuinely offensive, like racist, homophobic, you know, Nazi kind of ideology, that, you know, these people should be shot or just dis, uh, driven out of polite society. And I agree that those ideas don't have a place in a liberal democracy, but the idea that every single young male who falls into this mindset is a lost cause, I think is false. And the only way to bring them from the brink is to actually discuss and engage them. The New York Times had an article, which they got a lot of heat for, because uh, it was on page A1, and it was just basically talked about some kid, I think he was from West Virginia, and he started watching Milton Friedman and Ben Shapiro videos, and then, you know, a couple, whatever time period later, he's gone full white nationalists. But the point of the article was, after a while, he's like, wait a minute, this isn't who I am, and he kind of reverted. So I think there's a, if no one is engaging with this population, it will be very easy with any group. If you're just getting, uh, talking to yourselves, mm -hmm. you end up getting more and more radicalized and extreme because there's no one there to pull the brakes and be like, you can still be against A, B, and C, but that doesn't mean you have to be for D, E, and F. Uh, if you, you can have contempt for, let's suppose, the New York Times, yeah. or you could even think we shouldn't have any immigration, but to say, I'm against immigration, therefore I'm going to be a Holocaust denier, right. this, this, this is a very odd Venn diagram. But if no one is sitting them down, that's what's going to end up happening on that slippery slope. See, that's something that I, I kind of struggle with. I think I know what, what you were getting at, but I feel like you were kind of talking about two far rights at the same time. One is the, yeah. these are people who, who have lost their way, right? Like there's a completely uh, logical, defensible argument for building a border wall. 
but it doesn't mean that you then need to believe the worst of the worst about like Mexicans yeah. or, or, or what or what have you. So you're kind of talking about the people who have frankly lost their mind, but you're also talking about the people who are raising legitimate questions that right. even if the answer ought to be obvious, they've got a right to to ask the question. Whereas I see right. in your book a, a little bit more of a of a monolithic for your purposes left and that's this concept of the cathedral which i'd like to get into what what is is that your term no mencius mulbug who is often you know maligned online and he's the one who invented it he was a blogger curtis yarvin is his real name okay so what is what is the idea of of the cathedral the idea of the cathedral is the premise that america despite pretenses the contrary is under the auspices of a barely secularized religion that this has been in place for a good hundred years and how it works is you have the monasteries uh which are the universities uh they train their proselytes which are um the journalists and, and writers and so on and so forth who spread the the, the faith throughout the nation, um, and then you have it perceived in entertainment and implemented by the state. Uh, to call it a religion is not a metaphor and analogy. It is used in a very literal sense, uh, and it is a fundamentalist faith. It is not synonymous with leftism. Uh, someone who says, uh, I think immigrants add more to this country than take away. I don't want a nation where people are starving in the streets. I don't think if you get cancer, you should go bankrupt. These are not at all synonymous with what we're discussing. What we're discussing at, at the concept of the cathedral as a fundamental faith is this idea that there is no aspect of anyone's life which is outside the purview of this kind of brand of politics. Um, and it started, one example of this was this early feminist motto, the personal is the political, right? And you know, back in the late 60s, early 70s, Betty Friedan, who wrote the Feminine Manifesto, uh, Feminine Mystique, excuse me, uh, was talking about the Lavender Menace. And at the time, and it's, it's almost kind of taboo to even discuss it, being a lesbian was regarded as a political act. It was de- regarded as an act of feminism and you know, kind of defying uh, norms, and she found this unconscionable. It, it sounds very quaint and antiquated to our ears uh, today, of course. But this, and I don't, this is not at all saying this, everyone has to be gay or something like that. The premise being that there is no aspect of anyone's life which is outside the purview of a very fundamentalist egalitarian mindset and that has to be pervaded in video games, comic books, Dungeon Dragons, sci-fi movies, music, entertainment. Uh, there's nothing outside of its um, agenda. And that, and that agenda is the, in simple terms, the politically correct agenda. You use the example of Star Trek, quote unquote, finally having a black Klingon when yeah. why on earth would we assume that there are, as you say, you know, Klingons of, of color? Vulcan. Right. Vulcan. Oh, Vulcan. Yeah, a Vulcan. Thank, you. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but right. That was the thing. There was an article in Spin Magazine. I think his name was Tuvok. I'm not a Star Trek fan. Yeah. And, you know, for years we had Spock. We had other Vulcans. And when they cast an African-American as a Vulcan, the article was finally we have a black Vulcan. And what was fascinating about this is, first of all, as you just said, the premise that races would evolve identically in other uh, other planets to our earth is insane right but second of all the article went on to say that the only people who would be opposed to this would be white supremacists as opposed to uh sci-fi nerds who know their biology which there's going to be a huge correlation there yes who would be like wait a minute Mm -hmm. why would what happens 
even it, it's specifically in America, you're not going to have African Americans or black people in Russia or other you know, such places, or Sweden or things like that. Right. That it would have to parallel the struggle of America in the 20th century. It is is nonsensical. But to even raise that question is to be in writing. Uh, described as a white supremacist. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're suspicious just for not just towing the the, the company line on that stuff. I guess yeah. what I kept wondering over and over as you kept on invoking this concept of the cathedral, which I I think even if it's not your idea, you seem to subscribe pretty strongly to is sure. Uh, how? Why? Like I, we ultimately think that. Um, a conspiracy to to control people's minds has somebody at the head of it that says here's what we're all going to do and why and it seems to me that what you're saying is a real phenomenon but that it has happened very very organically i think the people who like school so much they decide to stay in college for the rest of their right. lives 98 percent of them are just really like that and then of course they're only around their own kind so you get group thinking you get this ever concentrated brand of of that liberalism but i was unclear if you think that there is some larger conspiracy that's pulling some strings there because that just seems like a thing that we get it's, that's just a sort of a built-in feature of liberalism uh, I don't think I would use. So the word conspiracy yeah, is, is very a loaded low. term. Yes, yeah, you're right. Because Harvey Weinstein was a conspiracy. Uh, you know, uh, Epstein was a conspiracy. Mm -hmm. Amy Rohrbach from ABC is like we all knew. Uh, and the example used in my book is the Constitutional Convention was a conspiracy. We just don't like that word because we like them. Yeah. But they all sat down in Philadelphia, swore themselves to secrecy, and said, "Okay, we're throwing out the Articles of Confederation. We're starting over, right?" And they're like, yeah. "Okay, cool." Right. So. Um, it's not a conspiracy in the sense at all that there's this you know, small cadre of people who are setting the agenda um, and kind of promulgating this worldview. I mean, but, I, but the I, question I, is, to use the word conspiracy, is is that small group of people actively conspiring as a group to do right, this? Right, but I'm, I'm saying there is not a small group of people, right? Mm -hmm. So one of my quotes I always say is you take one red pill, not the whole bottle. Right. I mean, there are certain people who want to ascribe everything that's happening to George Soros personally. Yeah. I think that's kind of insane. Mm -hmm. um, the point being, we it's not a conspiracy either in the sense that we are told explicitly, and we have been for over 100 years, that the po of 120 years, the premise of the university system is training the leaders of tomorrow. It is training the next generation of elites. And how elites pass on their elite status is by teaching the next generation to do what we do. There's some changes between standard deviations, but it's still very much passing on uh, an ideology. You had organizations like the AEA, the American Economic Association, uh, Richard Eli, who was one of Woodrow Wilson's professors, was uh, one of the founders, and their premise was, okay, we are going to make all the prominent universities teach a certain type of economics. And this economics, which we see very much in contemporary times, uh, is this kind of technocratic, maybe Mitt Romney kind of economics, where you have the smart scientific people, experts, who are going to be you know, turning all the knobs and the levers and making the economy work for everybody. And this is something that pervades both political parties. And it's not at all a conspiracy, because if I go to, you know, if I'm a member of an elite university and you are, and someone went to Dartmouth and I went to Harvard, went to Yale to use just some broad examples, we are going to be taught largely the same thing because any elite class is going to have some sort of coherent ideology and it has to in order to maintain its status as an elite. One of the things I also discuss in the book is uh, 
the idea that we're not going to have an elite, that there isn't going to be some kind of ruling class, is itself incoherent. Because there will always be, in every culture and mm -hmm. society, someone who is at the very least setting the terms of debate uh, and what is acceptable and what is not. I guess I'm still a little confused because I I I, I guess I've, I I don't think I'm a part of the liberal elite, but I've certainly rubbed shoulders with them, and I don't see them at all as conceiving of themselves as belonging to a class. I don't think uh, um, a rich, powerful, liberal, coastal person is thinking about the next generation of anything. They're thinking about how they can accumulate wealth and take care of their family and die winning. And they, they, if, they have no concerns for society at large beyond tisk tisking at Twitter. But if they're taking, if they're talking about their kids, that is the next generation, mm -hmm. right, in that case. Um, one, the example I use in my book, which I, I don't think many people disagree with, is that Hillary Clinton has more in common with George W. Bush than she does with the janitor who voted Democrat his oh, entire life. Oh, got it, right, sure. Unlike yeah. her. Mm -hmm. So that's what me, this, I, this self, I, you see photos of Michelle Obama chuckling with W all the time, although publicly they're supposed to be arch enemies in each, each, at each other's throats. So this idea that like, yeah, we're on the other side and we hate each other, at the end of the day and underneath that all, there is this sense of camaraderie, there is this sense of, you know, us versus them. Uh, and that is kind of the concept of the elite class. Oh yeah, no, in that sense, of course, yeah, the 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 haves and the and the have-nots. Right. And the point's been made many times that uh, you know I probably have more in common with um, a doctor in London than I do with a laborer in Los Angeles. Yes, and also this is one of the reasons there's such an animus against Trump because he is very much a low-class outsider in many ways he's not refined in any uh, uh, he's trashy he's much more jerry springer uh than he is you know uh, belgravia or or downton abbey so having that and having him speak to them and of them in such contemptuous terms is violating some taboos because there is this sense of or supposed to be a, a bit of decorum among the haves and he seems to be uh, doing the quite the exact opposite of that um you mentioned george soros i you know he's portrayed as such a boogeyman on one side i'm sure you know way more about him than i do just honestly what is your take because all you hear is either that he is you know the the puppet master of the world or no 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 absolutely nothing to see here i've never read any description or depiction of the man that's anywhere in between those two extremes yeah, I mean, it's very kind of interesting because when you ever you invoke him, you get those two responses right. and both of them seem to be very bizarre. Uh, there was an, a writer for The Atlantic, I forget his name, and he was just basically making the point that criticism of George Soros is illegitimate because he's a Holocaust survivor. Right. And, you know, this is factual but not truthful because, yes, he survived the Holocaust, he was in Hungary, but that term, you know, someone who escaped Germany in the early part of Hitler's reign was a Holocaust survivor and someone who lived in Hungary under uh, Nazi rule was a Holocaust survivor and someone who was in the camps was a Holocaust survivor. And to use that term to make George Soros out to be another Anne Frank, I think is disingenuous at best. Of course. At the same time, you have people who will say, you know, anything that, that bad that's happening is Soros, you know, he, Soros wants the vaccines or they don't want vaccines, so on and so forth. So it's very bizarre to see both ways. Uh, I think if there's anyone, and I'm sure you would agree, and most people would agree, if there is anyone who should be subject to the strongest public scrutiny, whether it's Soros or Sheldon Adelson or Bill Gates, it's a billionaire who's using their wealth to affect political change 
especially on an international level. I'm comfortable with people using their money to buy ads and finance you know, not-for-profits and NGOs and things like that. That's one thing. But to say that, well, because of their biography, they're beyond criticism, that is just absurd. I mean, these are the people we should be most concerned about, those who are not elected and therefore in some sense uh, responsible to the populace, mm -hmm. but at the same time have the wealth to be able to, behind the scenes, really mobilize people and, and make things happen in one way or another. Sure. Okay, but like literally about Soros, in your opinion, based on whatever you know, on a scale of 1 to 10, how evil would you say he seems to be? I don't know. Right. Because because there's so much um, smoke and mirrors around him. Yeah. Like, on the one hand, it's like, okay, he's fighting for liberal democracy and for, like, in Hungary, right? He wants, they're, they're having assaults on the, Viktor Orban, the Prime Minister of Hungary, is having major assaults on freedom of the press there. Uh, it, you know, journalists are protesting very heavily. He's against that. I don't know how much of this kind of uh, um, leftist stuff can be tied to him directly. Uh, and he's kind of keeps, plays his cards close to his chest. So I am, I don't find much utility in saying this person or that person is evil because like you say it is a boogeyman kind of thing mm -hmm. i'm more interested in talking about ideas and trends yeah and how what consequences those are because i i sincerely do believe that if george soros vanishes tomorrow that's like like if trump vanishes tomorrow you're not going to have these ideas and trends just implode yeah yeah that's fair enough well said um you mention a number of times in the book that you are a Jewish person who's often swimming in fairly anti-Semitic waters. I I don't mean this as like a virtue signaling kind of thing. I've literally always had trouble wrapping my brain around anti-Semitism. I don't know what this says about me. I can understand other forms of racism, even if I don't agree with it <laughs> more than like, why is this such a thing, a persistent thing in right-wing movements across the world and now throughout history? What do you think is the, the, the nature of the beast of anti-Semitism, particularly in regard to the right? I, I don't think it's necessary. I mean, the Labour Party in the UK just had to pay a huge amount of money because there was this whole issue with anti-Semitism okay. there with Jeremy Corbyn and people like that. And you see it in, in things like Rashida Tlaib having a map of the Middle East in her office and Israel's not on it. So I, I think there is very much, I don't think being anti-Israel means being an anti-Semite, right. but I do think there's a huge Venn diagram ah. uh, between the two things. And yeah. I, I don't think most people would, would deny that. Uh, just as there's plenty of people who are anti-affirmative action who aren't racist, but there's plenty of people who are anti-affirmative action who certainly are. Right. So in terms of why there is so much anti-Semitism, well, on the one hand, there's going to, it's going to, I'm not going to, you're asking me to kind of make it coherent and defense, defensible. I'll do my best. Uh, I think there is, um, first of all, there's something exciting about discussing ideas that are regarded as so heretical uh, that makes you feel important and edgy because you're being defiant. It's like smoking in the bathroom on the one hand. Secondly, there is uh, in any movement, you are going to have, you know, being a Jewish person, a disproportionate amount of Jewish people who are intellectual leaders. Uh, you see this in uh, contemporary leftism, but you also see it in libertarianism. The founding members of libertarianism, Ayn Rand, Ludwig von Mises, Murray Rothbard, they were all Jewish. Uh, Emma Goldman uh, and Alexander Berkman were kind of the founders of American anarchism. They were both Jewish. So I think it's, it's and I talked to Jared Taylor, who is like a big, he would call himself race realist, right? Uh, he's, his big issue is race and basically races can't live together. Um, and his whole point is, you know, all of these things that the racists hate, 
that it's like, oh, I'm not getting ahead because I'm being kept down by the white race. They're taking verbatim that same argument and saying, oh, I can't get ahead because it's the Jews. Um, and he and and I, you know, I hesitate to agree with him on, on anything really, but the the premise that it's a lot easier to accept uh, you aren't doing so well, like you said earlier, if it's a small cadre who is in charge, because then if you just get rid of that cadre, then everything will resolve itself. It's just that simple, huh? I don't know if it's that simple. No, I'm sure if you met some uh, intelligent anti-Semites, and there are them, <laughs> that they would have a more flourishing and nuanced perspective. But I, I'm not really in a position to uh, discuss it, nor do I think they would discuss it very heavily with me. Fair enough. Um, you mentioned this uh, Pat Buchanan speech as uh, a flashpoint for the the new right. I do not recall. I mean, I don't know how old I was when he gave that speech. I don't re- recall giving a shit about it too much one way or a, another, what, what was the, the basic point of that speech and why do you think it has been so influential? Well, uh, this was during the George H.W. Uh, re-election. This was 92. Buchanan kind of was this out of nowhere upstart. He had, no, he had never been elected to anything. He'd worked at a Nixon White House. He'd be a pundit. Um, and basically he got enough support as a protest vote during the primaries where they gave him a speaking slot. And George H.W. Bush is very much a blue blood. He'd been head of the CIA. His father, Prescott Bush, was a senator from Connecticut, an Eisenhower Republican, kind of liberal Republican, which is something we don't really have much of the, uh, today. And, you know, Barbara Bush, her, Barbara Pierce Bush, she's a descendant of Franklin Pierce, the president, uh, always in her pearls, like literally. Uh, she's known for this. So they were very genteel. Um, you know, Bush very famously cut, uh, broke, broke his word uh, of uh, no new taxes. He cut a deal with the Democrats saying, okay, we're going to raise taxes in exchange for having spending cuts. So he uh, was far to, in many ways, the left of Reagan and really want, and Reagan worked with the Democrats as well, with Tip O'Neill very famously. Uh, his hero till the day he died was FDR, and he spoke about this constantly and publicly. Buchanan was not of this school. Buchanan was of the Nixon school. Uh, it's us versus them. Uh, and to get on a stage in 92 and say that uh, there's a war in this country uh, was regarded as so belligerent and so um, beyond the pale that many people understandably reacted uh, um, hostily. I mean, if you sit down and I'm like, okay, you have your perspective, I have my perspective, let's get together and hash it out. And the person says to you, oh, no, 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 we're not hashing anything out, we're at war. It's like, well, I don't know where do we go from here. I mean, if you're declaring this either unilaterally or you're even telling me, which I don't feel that, that I'm apparently at war with you. So the reaction there was um, enormous. Uh, and it led to, uh, two years later, the Gingrich uh, uh, revolution um, and the Republicans seizing uh, power. Bob Livingston, you know, when they were refusing, they shut down the, the government. They're refusing to increase spending as Clinton wanted and not in a particularly extreme way stood on the floor of the house and pounded the, 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 the cubicle or whatever it's called at the podium and said, we will be here till doomsday. And then he remembered what, what it was. He goes, Merry Christmas, because it was December 25th. <laughs> so it, that was a far cry from the 1990 uh, um, George H.W. Bush. So just go from 90 to 92 to 94, how quickly mm-hmm. the Republican Party, at least in its, its rhetoric, uh, 
became far more antagonistic and aggressive. So basically, the the point of it is saying that the opposition is their they or their point of view is illegitimate, and we don't need to tangle with that anymore. We just need to find a way to win this war and steamroll if necessary. Yeah, and you or else we're going to get steamrolled. And you see, oh, I see. Okay, yeah, right. Good point. And and, and you see a direct line from that moment to where the alt right, the new right, stands nowadays. And I mean, it's a very easy line between that and Trump. I mean, the way he talks every five minutes, it's, you know, these people are against me, this, so on and so forth. Uh, it's, it's, it's not even, it's, I think this is very, very mainstreamed um, within the Republican Party and to some extent the Democratic Party as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's convenient to say that everybody's just off in their little bubble, but there is quite a bit to be said for that, is you have two kind of tribes of people who are never all that good at talking to each other in the first place. And the circumstances produce more, you know, and gerrymandering for as well produces these more polarized sure. parties. Yes. And, and again, the thing just perpetuates itself and gets into these two concentrated brands of politics that get further and further apart from one another. Um, I only and social media, of course, also escalates that because then you're drawn to having your, you're only talking to yourselves. Mm-hmm. So everything goes to its logical conclusion, but logical conclusions in reality and especially in political reality, those are not synonymous. Uh, and, and then it becomes very difficult to port your so-called logical conclusion to uh, what's going on and what the possibilities are in real life. Yeah, and uh, I, mean, I have so many things I want to talk to you about. I maybe have time for one more subject. I see so much of what you're talking about, and I'd already seen it so depressingly in the way that we have um, responded as a nation to coronavirus. You know, you, yeah. you have an objective reality. And so often, you know, you can pass your tax cut or you cannot pass your tax cut and something can happen and we can still sit around all day and argue over whether or not it worked. Here you have this very objective thing that is going to do what it is going to do regardless of what your politics are and people on both sides don't seem able to to uh to to reckon with that and this guy jonathan height that you mentioned oh yeah yeah so i love that i I, this is sort of an idea that i've long had where we kind of our our gut makes a decision and then our brain builds up all these ideas this cocoon around it but we kid ourselves into thinking that we've ever actually made up our mind to begin with our mind was made up and now we we support that stuff in i I, as they say coronavirus is such a perfect example i have children i have an eight-year-old hasn't had a play date in six months and i and i read it's terrible and and i read things of well maybe it's okay maybe uh kids are less susceptible we don't know we literally have a disease that didn't exist six months ago sure nobody has the facts on this and the facts that you had a month ago were great a month ago but the facts are going to continue to evolve and they should continue to evolve so we need to understand this thing and yet i find that so i swim in in liberal bubbles if i just say hey guys i know how we have been dealing with this but let's really take a look maybe our kids can hang out with each other and it's not a it's not the worst thing if they touch each other the facts might bear that out both sides are so far gone that either it's totally fine what are you talking about the whole thing's a hoax or no you cannot convince me it's okay for my child to play with your child because we've already decided on our side that that's not okay facts be damned or what about just saying, you know what, my son hasn't had a play date in six months. I'm worried about his mental health. Mm-hmm. Well, too bad. People are dying. What's your alternative? It's like, you know, I, it's, it's perfectly valid to be like, I'm concerned about people mm-hmm. who had originally been marginalized, maybe out of work, and now they're trapped in their house. What that's going to do for them, just long term and short term. And it's like, well, what do you want? People to die? It's like, uh, it's, it's okay to have a conversation where there's secondary concerns, which might not be life-threatening, but much, which might still be severe. 
Well, yeah. It, I mean, it's, uh, very often it seems like what you can boil it down to is you have, um, you know, like a, a doctor puppet arguing with uh, an economist puppet. Yeah. Yeah. And they're not speaking in the same terms and people just refuse. I just always assumed that for all of the nonsense that's been going on with people arguing with each other and, you know, Twitter and et cetera, that if a real challenge comes along, I just so foolishly, naively thought people would say, OK, it's it's time to be adults. It was fun to argue with each other over tariffs and things that barely touch our lives, at least as far as we can tell. But this matters. Let's actually figure this out. And 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 no, people are actually more concerned. It, it, it's scary. It's it's horribly depressing to me. And I, I imagine you kind of feel the same way as somebody who doesn't have a home in, in either party that we have this real, real sickness where I, I, I don't know, maybe adults in America have never been able to discuss actual issues in a concrete way and find solutions and compromises, but I see no chance of that now. I went full lefty not that long ago because I was on the subway going to the studio and there and I put this on my Instagram, it's still there. There was this Asian dude in his thirties, but he wasn't he was all dressed Western. It wasn't like he was just fresh off the boat or something. And even if he was, whatever. And an older man in his fifties stood over him on the subway, screaming, literally screaming at him. Why don't you have a mask on? Why are you here? Go back where you came from. I mean, to use that expression in, that, in those words, unironically, was shocking to me to hear. And I, it made me realize that this, if you were that concerned about this disease, you wouldn't be getting physically proximate to him. You'd be getting onto the next train car. That's right. You'd be making sure. But this has empowered many people to be the worst, their worst impulses to come out because now they have the validation of the culture at large. One of the things that kind of my broader concern, my previous book had been about North Korea, is you know we always wonder how do these totalitarian regimes turn the populace against each other. It's really easy because now it's allowing people who have, uh, giving them a sense of status because now you're telling them it's not only okay but encouraged for you to be dominant over someone you perceive as lower than you mm -hmm. and enforce these norms upon them. And that way you don't need the police to enforce these norms. I mean, this is where my kind of Emma Goldman left anarchism comes in. It's, it's to me, it's, it's so repellent and horrifying to watch one grown person speak to another grown person from a position of ostensible authority in the most vile ways possible to see it happen in real life. It, it's, 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 just mortifying and that's that's the the thing of of the age that if you're paying attention should be i think depressing you the most like you say donald trump is not adolf hitler um and you know we've all lived in a it couldn't it can't happen here kind of world and i don't think it has happened here but it's never been so clear to me how easily it, it could that's my yes, real takeaway yes. from from this era and if you don't see that you're just you're you're not you're, you're not seeing reality well, we're, it happened 20 years ago. I think those of us who are old enough to remember, after 9-11, if George W. Bush had said we're suspending the Constitution, he would be applauded and there would be per, have been parades in his honor. Yeah. This country was absolutely ready for him to declare martial law, and we were all wondering if he's going to do it, but no one was wondering, like, this is going to be a bad idea. We're like, if he decides to do this, it's the right thing. Yeah. We were ready for he it. He was going to go full Palpatine if he wanted to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I have to let you go. Uh, I've gotten, I don't, I, I barely scratch the surface of what's in the book. There's so much to chew on. I definitely encourage people who are uh, interested in the conversation we've been having to to read it because there's plenty more where, where that came from. The book is called The New Right, A Journey to the Fringe of American Politics. Thank you so much for your time. You're Michael Malice at Michael Malice. Thanks, bud. Mike, such a pleasure. <laughs>